If you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Isaiah chapters 3 and 4. Isaiah chapters 3 and 4. Don't get too nervous. Chapter 4 is pretty short. Isaiah 3 and 4. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people." For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people... Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. In her gates shall lament and mourn, empty she shall sit on the ground, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat 
and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word together this morning. Let us pray. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we come to you and we need instruction, we need truth, and we need your gospel to be able to take a look at ourselves, to see what in this text applies to us, and to remember that even if everything that is said in here is true, there is salvation that can be found in you. Even if everything that is said is true of us, I should say, we know it's true. But Father, we pray you would help us to know the gospel deeply enough, to know the truth about ourselves, and to know the truth of your love for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God's judgment a shotgun or a sniper rifle? Is His mercy manna from heaven or is it an Amazon delivery? In other words, are these things scattered to all or are they targeted to specific individuals? The simple answer would have to be both, right? Is God's justice a, a shotgun, a scatter gun hitting everything in its general direction? Well, were there any German Christians who suffered in Nazi Germany in spite of their faith in Christ? And is God's grace, is it widespread as well? Is, is His grace common to all men? Theologians talk about God's common grace. He allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Justice and grace, or maybe we should say God's bit of providence and His common grace. They fall upon us all. They're widespread, but God's wrath, justice, they are also targeted. You see that in this passage. Particular judgments come in light of particular sins. Likewise, His mercy is targeted. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Or Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. As Luther said, the heart of religion lies in personal pronouns. He's not just God, he's my God. Because he loves me and takes care of me, as the children's catechism says. You'll see God's targeted justice, his targeted mercy in this passage, especially verses 9 through 11. But first, note about outline, timeline of the passage. Chapters 3 and 4 are generally divided into the actual condition of Jerusalem and the future condition of Jerusalem. Chapters, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 for the last one. But even that outline is too simple. He seems at times to go back and forth between present condition and future judgment as well as future blessing. But, but uh, perhaps Derek Kidner can explain. He says in Judah... The prophecy, no doubt, was beginning to come true by the time the Assyrians had done their pillaging and deportation, but its real fulfillment waited a century to Nebuchadnezzar's invasion and exile. Bottom line, the prophecy is undated, but it still has a lot to teach us. Three things that Isaiah sees this morning. Three things that Isaiah sees this morning. Number one, leaders exiled. Leaders exiled. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Start at verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. That first word, for, draws us back to 2, verse 22, which 
rebuked Israel for trusting human leaders. Why? Because leaders are not invincible. They can be taken away just like the necessities, bread and water. Mighty men can be taken away. So can soldiers and judges and prophets, diviners and elders, as verse 2 says. All sources of what you might call strength or defense, justice, wisdom, they can be taken away. Also, some ungodly forms of wisdom are mentioned alongside the elders, verses 2 and 3. Diviners, skillful magicians, experts in charms. God rebukes Israel for relying upon them. He's taking away their worldly wisdom as well. Is the removal of their leaders a sign of His coming judgment or the judgment itself? I think it's both. And what follows in verse 4 and beyond is the desperate attempt to fill the leadership void. Alec Moitier calls verses 1 through 7 the imminent collapse of society. Verse 4 is in the future tense. This is about to happen, be it next year, a hundred years later. Soon it says God will make boys into princes. Infants shall rule over them. Exaggeration? Probably. But that will lead in verse 5 to mutual oppression, chaos, a dog-eat-dog world where the youth will not respect the remaining elders. They'll look for anyone with a pulse, anyone with a cloak to lead them. And still, some will turn them down. Why is that happening? Verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. And then verse 9 is more specific. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. We should be ashamed of certain things. We should not boast about Excuse me, we should boast about God's mercy. We should not boast of unrepentant sin. Sodom is mentioned here. Sodom was bold and unrepentant. The men of Sodom knocked on Lot's door in Genesis. They announced plans to commit sin, homosexual sin, and most likely sexual assault as well. Now, did Judah sin like that? Or were they as bold and brazen about some other sin? Well, it's definitely the second one, but possibly both. The leaders, says here, are exiled. They're taken away. Current or future, probably future, but we're not sure. And what was their sin? Not 100% sure. Maybe they misled the people, verse 12. Away from God's paths of righteousness, encouraging sin, calling evil good and good evil. It might also be some type of oppression or misuse of power, based on verses 14 and 15. You know, one hallmark of bad leaders is that they use their power to perpetuate their power. Good leaders give power away in this sense. They raise up other leaders. They don't simply hang on to it as long as possible. But whatever their exact sin, sins, was, were, it was not a mystery to the people. Oh, they bragged about their sin. Verse 9, they do not hide it. So God judged the nation and left a void of leadership. And the pattern seems to be of unqualified leaders. Uh, Verse 12 is interesting. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. 
somebody read that with no context, no knowledge of the Bible, they might say, the Bible is sexist, something like that. Now first, remember the context. God is removing sinful leaders who would have been male back in the 8th century B.C. in Israel. And those who were not considered qualified by society back then to be leaders, including infants who are mentioned in that verse, they were filling the void. The Net Bible, its translator's notes, it says this, the text reflects the ancient Israelite patriarchal mindset. In other words, an Israelite man or woman reading or hearing this back then would have likely said, where are the men? Why aren't they leading? Why aren't they acting like benevolent, responsible leaders to sacrifice for the good of those they serve? Similar note, this is anecdotal, but I hope it's instructive. Some churches, denominations have female elders, even though that does not fit the plain reading of the New Testament's qualifications for elders. But it's been said by some of those women that the reason they rose into that role was not primarily because their view about elder qualifications, not primarily because their view about the inerrancy or authority of Scripture. It was because the men in their congregations would not step up and lead. They wouldn't serve. They were passive, a sin that men are prone to. There's more we could say about that. Don't assume I'm endorsing something just because I didn't outright say something about it. I'm a little pressed for time, but nonetheless, surely there is no lack of ways that women can serve our churches. And we should encourage them to do so in appropriate biblical roles and give thanks when they do. Indeed, praise God for the godly women who serve Forest Gate. And surely it's a sad day when the men of the church, of whom God says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a sad day when men stop desiring or pursuing or answering the call to that noble task. Now, we are not perfect as a church. Don't mistake, mistake me. But I do not believe we have that problem that I just mentioned Today in your e-bulletin, you will see a link to five officer candidates presented to you. There's, there's an announcement. There's a link. More next week. We've had a thousand announcements this week. We know. But our session interviewed them recently, those officer candidates. And one of our elders gave thanks during that interview, nearly at the point of tears. I won't name names. For the type of men, some of them young men, whom God is raising up in our midst. But in Judah, in Jerusalem, God was judging the leaders in the nation by removing her leaders and allowing those who were unqualified to be raised up. Now, was that the scattergun of God's justice? Or was it a sniper rifle? Look at verses 10 and 11. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Surely some righteous people in Judah suffered because of their bad leaders. But God knows those who are his, and he will not forget his promises to them. It shall be well with the righteous. And keep in mind, this is a Psalm 32 kind of righteous man or woman we're talking about here. Blessed are those, Psalm 32 says, whose sins are covered. 
No one's righteous on their own. Romans 3 says so. But because God made him who knew no sin to be sin, because of that, we who trust in Christ can become the righteousness of God, righteous in his sight when we're covered in Christ's blood. Because God poured out the wrath that we deserved upon Christ, therefore, we can inherit the blessings that Christ, the righteous one, has purchased for us. Whereas there are some who are not in Christ, who have not taken refuge in Christ, who have no shelter from God's wrath. Verse 11 assures us they will get all the cruelty that they dished out coming back at them by God's hand. Isaiah sees the leaders exiled. God forbid, may may it never be for us. Verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Blessed are those who are covered in Christ's righteousness. May we never see a day like Isaiah describes. We hope, we pray. After Isaiah saw the leaders exiled, he also saw, secondly, beauty taken away. Beauty taken away. You see this starting in chapter 3, verse 16. It spills into the first verse of chapter 4. The men just took a verbal beating, right? Now Isaiah rebukes the women of Israel. Possibly the wives of these sinful elders. Look at verses 25 and 26. May see that. Their primary sin was probably vanity. External adornment at the neglect of inner beauty. In other words, these were not Proverbs 31 women. They couldn't hold a candle to Ruth. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. External beauty, it's, it's empty. It's fleeting. It won't last forever. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That was not their life verse. God may be condemning them for flirtatiousness, promiscuity. You might notice the phrase in verse 16, uh, glancing wantonly. But above all, they were, they were vain. Verse 16, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. One author says God is also condemning the arrogance, the, the haughtiness behind these luxurious lifestyles. And soon He is going to take it all away. Verses 18 to 23, it's a catalog. Every type of jewelry and fancy clothing and adornment. I'm not going to read it all again. I won't try to explain each word. The point is fairly clear. God is taking away their beauty. And yes, this is particularly aimed at the women of Israel. But men and women are wise to take notice here. Do not place your worth, your value in what my hands have done, or what my hands are wearing, watches, rings, or anything else, or other outward adornments. Sometimes the only one wearing a suit on Sunday, probably the only one wearing a pink tie today as well, but that's for another day, and that's fine. I, I do, I dress the way I do on Sundays because I'm in the presence of my king. I think he deserves my best, but I'm not fooled. Not for a moment do I think that my shoes, my suit, whatever, makes me more acceptable in God's sight. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me 
Savior or I die. Because here's the thing, if you rely on outward appearance for your value, God can take that away. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Those who trusted in external beauty, God will, what does he say, expose their secret parts. Also known as their shameful nakedness. Nakedness was a sign of shame in the Old Testament because your secret parts were only supposed to be seen by your lifelong spouse. Kids, teenagers especially, listen to me for a second. If someone you love demands to see you naked, in person, over text message, email, whatever, without first committing their whole life to you, then they do not love you as much as you think they might do, as much as they say they might do. Reminds me of something I read during our Ruth series. As God gave Himself to us in Jesus Christ, and we give ourselves exclusively to Him, so sex is to be practiced only within the lifelong covenant of marriage. Sex is not casual, it's not merely for fun, it is a quote, joyous, even sacred expression that reflects the way God is saving the world. All that from the PCA's recent report on human sexuality. God gives himself to us and he promises to never let us go. Now to be clear, I know that sex and seeing a, a nude, a naked selfie, whatnot, I know those are different, but even the second one, is something sacred, personal, meant to be secret, meant to be unseen by all but your most trusted and intimate partner, your husband or wife, current or future as the case might be. And to be clear once again, sexual sin is sin. Like all sin, sexual sin can be forgiven to those who repent. But sexual sin can leave deep scars, and I would not be doing anyone a favor if I failed to say that. Lastly, I am not trying to talk about sex a lot. Those of you who wondered, I think it's been in the text. I know that our culture is obsessed with sex and that if we don't talk about it, our people, our children will be learning not what the Bible has to say about it, but primarily what the world around us has to say about it. I like to say my job is a series of awkward conversations. You can tick this off as one of them. Israel found her worth in her outer beauty, in being desired, in the pleasure that it brought her or others. And God said, because you arrogantly trusted your beauty, I will take all your beauty away. All 21 items that he mentions in verses 18 through 23. And then he also says, verse 24, instead of perfume... There will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. From silk to sackcloth, Derek Kidner says, signs of shame, poverty, and more. And then Isaiah says, verse 25, Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground, Chapter 4, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Picture is not rich women with powerful husbands. It's poor women who are bereaved, who are desperate for anyone to take them in, even offering to bring home the bacon themselves. 
Their beauty is taken away. What they trusted is gone. No one desires them anymore. Now they're begging for shelter and protection. And I say again this morning, may it not be so for us. May we know the love of a godly husband or wife who pledges to love us and cherish us for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And even if God does not give us that blessing or the blessing of motherhood, parenthood, may we know the love of God that is better than life. Phil Riken, commenting on Luke 22, says this, How little I love my wife now in comparison to how much she will be loved in heaven. In addition, he says, as Christians, we are engaged to Jesus Christ and we can find our full satisfaction only in our marriage relationship to Him. Truly a match made in heaven. In judgment, God was going to remove Israel's beauty. But if we're loved by Christ, take refuge in Christ, then we are beautiful in His sight washed with pure water. One of the many images we'll see in just a moment. After Isaiah saw the leaders exiled and Israel's beauty taken away, he also saw a picture of Israel home at last. Home at last. That's our final point. That's chapter 4. In that day, that's how verse 2 starts. It refers back to Isaiah 2.12, which talks about the day of the Lord, of His victory over His enemies in some of Israel, God's people, were actually his enemies. In that day, repeated several times, chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 7, 3, verse 18, this day is going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. Yet in that day, something beautiful will happen as well. On one particular day of the Lord, there will be both judgment and a beautiful revelation. That second part is what we see in chapter 4. It's short, but it's packed with pictures of good news. The Israelites who would be exiled, taken from their home, they will one day come home again with all that that image entails and more. Verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Not much said about the branch here, but it is fruitful. Isaiah 11 will say more. This branch is the shoot from the stump of David's seemingly dead dynasty, ready to blossom and bear fruit again. What if we just had another king like David? He wasn't perfect, but he was repentant. He sought the Lord. And, and, and what if we had someone even better? Be fruitful. Farmers and gardeners would have rejoiced at that. The branch will come for God's people. And salvation will be in full bloom. In verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. City dwellers would have rejoiced at this. Jerusalem, it's in ruins physically and spiritually. But God is saying one day it will be restored. Everything it should be and more. He will right every wrong. He will make all the sad things come untrue. And He will do this for the remnant. Now that exact phrase doesn't appear here, I know. But it does say those who remain in Jerusalem. And this idea, the remnant, it is central for Isaiah. He's talking about God's people who resist the draw and drift of the world, who remain faithful by God's grace 
who see the chaos around them and cling closely, tightly to their God. For them, there is washing and renewal, verse 4 says. Not merely externally like a baptism, but internally what baptism represents. And oh, by the way, this washing, it might involve fire, burning, judgment, verse 4 says, but afterwards it'll be worth it. Verses 5 and 6, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Images upon images here. There's, there's the cloud by day, just like Exodus. When Israel wandered, when God led them by this cloud, when He gave them shelter and provision, when He allowed their clothes and sandals to last for 40 years in the wilderness, as it says in Deuteronomy 29.5. Their shoes lasted for 40 years. Their sandals. I never spoke to my late grandfather about this passage, but... Rumor has it, he claimed for years to still have the shoes that he was married in. Maybe that was a miracle too, I don't know. Talk about it with my mom later. But, but now, that exodus cloud, it's, it's stationary. Along with the, the smoke and the shining of a flaming fire, God's presence is hovering in place over Mount Zion, over His people. He is the... Their God, they are His people. He is with them. Emmanuel, God with us. And they are shielded, it says, by a booth, a tent, a tabernacle, if you will, to shield them from desert heat or storms or rain or anything else that might harm them. And again, this is permanent. The God of the Exodus wanderers, the God of the exiled Israelites, He has now made a permanent mailing address for himself, along with his people. They're not wandering anymore. They're not vagabonds and strangers. They're home. Everything they need and more. And along with the glory of verse 5, there is also, it says here, a canopy hovering over it all. The word means canopy, sheltering roof. I pictured a lean-to when I was reading about this. But elsewhere, Psalm 19, Joel 2, it means... The bridegroom's chamber. The bridegroom's chamber. The room that the bridegroom emerges from when he comes to take his bride and to take her to himself, take her to his home. You know, as we consider all of these pictures together in chapter 4, I'm going to return to my first question. I asked you, is God's judgment a shotgun or a sniper rifle? Scatter shot or precision aimed? I ask the same thing basically about God's mercy. And if I can mix my metaphors, God's love for His remnant, those who remain faithful by His grace, God's love for His remnant, it's like a sniper rifle crossed with Cupid's arrow. In a sea of sin and misery, God is aiming at us. And He will not miss and when He grabs us into His loving arms, we will never be the same. He will capture our hearts with His love. He will never let us go. He will provide all that we need and more. Leaders of society may fail us. 
the bold and the beautiful may fade away. But in that final glorious day, there will be happy ever after. This is not a fairy tale. This is God's word, and it is true. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good to us. You're good to us with all of your gifts. You're good to us with the gift of mothers. You're good to us with the gift of your word. And Father, we pray now that you would help us to cherish all your precious gifts to us, all your precious promises, that we would remember them and not simply for as long as it takes for us to exit this building this morning, but we would remember them for as long as we have on this earth until we see you face to face. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.